Welcome to Table Talk, where we discuss issues of faith, culture, and the church. Here's your host, my dad, Jerry Bertelson. Welcome to the table, friends. Today we continue the conversation that began last week on this podcast, but has been going on uh, much longer than this podcast has been uh, a reality. A conversation of race in America and what role the church has to play uh, in that continued conversation and um, and hopes for the future. Today, my guest is uh, a friend who uh, who I got to know through the Lewis Fellows Program at Wesley Theological Seminary, uh, Reverend Michael Parker II. He is a United Methodist pastor who is serving a two-point charge in the greater D.C. area. So, Michael, thank you and and welcome to the table. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, brother. I'm yeah. glad to be here. This is great. I, I really appreciate your your time today to uh, to share, to talk, and to have a conversation together. I I want to begin with what's been on my mind and really the conscience of the country these past couple of weeks. Um, what have these been? What have these two these past two weeks been like for you since the um, the killing of George Floyd? Uh it has almost felt like um, reliving a space um, that I had already been in. Um, while there's so many um, drastic differences um, around the aura, the feel of this time with the uh, killing of uh, George Floyd, um, it felt um, a lot like uh, when uh, my childhood friend, Freddie Gray, um, was killed. Um, as a result of uh, an injury sustained while in police custody in Baltimore in 2015. And um, so my um, initial reaction was, here we go again. Um, And so it's been extremely difficult. Um, It has been heavy. Um, You know, I I lament for uh, my brothers and sisters of color that yet again um, are in this this place of deep pain and, and deep hurt, and it seems almost as if a hurt that never goes away. Um, so it, it has been a rough uh, couple of weeks, very exhausting, very emotionally taxing um, as well. Um, and that's just in dealing with it as just a, a, a black man. Um, add the pressures of being somebody's pastor on top of that. Mm. Um, even more so, uh, the pastor of people of color and interesting enough, um, in this appointment that I'm serving, um, I'm also serving in a, a multiracial um, appointment as well. And so um, having to pastor and having to be prophet at the same time. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little exhausting. Wow. A little exhausting. How, do you, how do you navigate those waters between pastor and prophet simultaneously in, in an amplified time like this? Hmm. Constant prayer. Mm. Um, I mean, literally almost every footstep is a prayer, you know, and so this, this continual, um, almost kind of like, uh, take it back to childhood, um, uh, on, uh, public television, there was a TV show, Lamb Chop, Play Along, and uh, they had a song at the end that said, this is a song that never ends, and so prayer almost is that same way, it's mm. a song that never ends, and so, um, being prayerful every moment, um, even as I'm listening and hearing, um, not only what is being spoken to me 
um, from those that I'm encountering, but what I'm hearing from God to know uh, what what trumpet needs to sound at what time. Um, but it is a, a very delicate place to be in um, to have to do that. Um, so that's one way that I do it, um, certainly. Um, the other is um, I thank God for amazing colleagues that I made like you, uh, that I am able to uh, reach out to to bounce thoughts off of, um, to say, hey, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm hearing, this is what I'm thinking. Um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for evidence that iron does sharp, sharpen iron. And yeah. so um, that definitely helps as well. Um, and, and believe it or not, rest. Um, rest um, provides a lot of clarity. Mm. Um, and, and when you are rested, when your body is rested, when your mind even more so, um, and your spirit is rested, um, I found you can hear with a lot more clarity, um, you know, what needs to be said in the moment. Now you mentioned you grew up, did you grow up in Baltimore or is it around the area? Man, I'm a Baltimore boy, West Baltimore <laughs> all day long, okay. all day long. Yes, sir. The heart of the city, West Baltimore, Sandtown, Winchester, uh, is the community that I grew up in, uh, in Baltimore. Can you share a little bit? So what, what is it like to grow up in, in Baltimore? I, what's a day look like? Well, for one, Baltimore is extremely diverse. Mm. Okay. And unfortunately, um, Baltimore is oftentimes painted in a negative light, mm. um, as if the entire city is corrupt, as if the entire city is broken, as if the entire city is in a handbasket on fire on its way to hell. Mm. Um, when the reality is that is not the case. As with any city, Baltimore does have its share of problems and its brokenness and its pain. Um, and um, however, there are um, a lot of beautiful spots and a lot of bright hope um, even throughout the city. Mm. Um, so a day growing up in Baltimore looks very different really for, for every person. It really just depends on um, who you are and, and, and where you're from and your family structure. So for me, um, a day growing up, um, I was blessed to grow up um, in a home with my grandparents. Um, and so uh, I was raised mostly by my grandparents. Uh, and so uh, I have an old soul, as they often say. And mm. I say, I, you know, it, that just uh, comes, with, comes with grandparents raising you up. Um, <laughs> but uh, we were a, a strong family, uh, but we, like many, were a poor family. Um, like many didn't really know we were poor. Um, you know, but we were, um, but we, we made it through, um, but we suffered, um, many of the ills that a lot of families suffer in the city. Um, my parents, um, divorced when I was young. Uh, my mother has suffered with a drug addiction most of my life. Um, and so, um, we dealt with that, you know, we dealt with the brokenness of that and the effects, uh, on the individual and on those connected to the individual that suffer. Um, with um, addiction. Um, so we have dealt with that. We have dealt with um, the gun violence. Uh, my only uh, brother was shot and killed um, at the age of 30, um, less than 500 feet from our front door. And so um, so we dealt with, with all of that. So we do know 
the hurt of the city and the pain of the city. But at the same time, uh, we do know the benefits and the blessings of it as well. Mm. Um, you know, I, I am grateful um, for the many doors that God has opened for me, even in the city. And in that, um, you know, I was blessed to go to one of the best, and I would say the best high school in the entire country, mm. uh, the Baltimore School for the Arts, um, all famously known as the Tupac School or the Jada Pinkett School or Tracy Tom School. And so um, I went there for opera music. And so here you got this little black boy from West Baltimore that is studying uh, opera music as a high school. Um, and so just the exposure even then that I got to uh, other cultures, the Italian culture and the German culture and, and learning to sing in Latin and in French and in Italian, you know, at 14 and 15 years old, and learning to read opera scores, you know. And so kids from where I come from, uh, statistics say should not be able to do that, should not have those opportunities, uh, do not make it out um, of the community to be able to do those kinds of things. Um, and I am blessed. Um, that for reasons unknown to me, God has kept God's hands on my life um, and has afforded me um, opportunities to do so. Um, so that, you know, that could be a day, um, you know, in, in the life of Baltimore. Um, mm -hmm. But then at the same time, so, you know, friends, um, prime example, um, uh, when we leave this table, um, I'll be headed to uh, a viewing for a childhood friend um, whose life was cut down in the streets of Baltimore. And um, so uh, same, same community, same neighborhood, uh, but two totally different experiences. Um, and here at the same age, uh, we're at two totally different junctures. So it, it, it varies. You were childhood friends with Freddie Gray. Is that what you mentioned earlier? Yes. C can you ex remind us of, of the circumstance and situation around his death? Um, so, uh, Freddie, um, who, who had his fair share of trouble, um, um, his fair share of run-ins with the police, uh, he was known to um, officers in the area, um, was uh, arrested, um, and proper protocols were not followed in terms of his arrest, um, and even the care for him once in the custody of police. And so he was then transported, uh, not directly, um, to supposedly to um, a lockup, um, but really was taken on a little tour through West Baltimore, not properly secured um, in the vehicle in which he was being transported, and as a result, um, sustained um, a life-threatening injury um, that he uh, subsequently succumbed to, and uh, it caused. Um, a huge uproar um, in the city, um, especially in, in West Baltimore, but it, it really went across the city. And the day of Freddie's funeral, um, maybe within an hour of his burial, riots broke out in West Baltimore. Um, at that time, I was finishing up my master's and um, preparing for um, commissioning as a provisional elder in United Methodist Church. And I was still living in um, Sandtown in that community at that time, but was serving um, a rather affluent church uh, about 45 minutes north of Baltimore City. And um, but my heart was always you know, in my hometown. And so 
Um, I was blessed that um, I was afforded the opportunity to um, do a lot of, of ministry and service right there where I was sleeping every night um, during that time um, and helping to, you know, with a little bit of influence that I have to restore um, some peace and some order in the neighborhood. And and it took a while. We, we saw a lot of um, a lot of destruction during that time. Businesses polluted and vandalized. Cars were set on fire. Fights were breaking out all over the place. And almost like what we're seeing on television now, in terms of the um, armed uh, police presence and things like that, um, and even the National Guard, that is what ended up happening in Baltimore. So literally, I was exiting my home in the morning. Um, to police officers in full riot gear. Um, so just, you know, it was unbelievable, an unbelievable time um, to live under. Um, but um, slowly and surely, um, as Baltimore always does, it, it rose again. Um, and, and since then, it has still seen its fair share of ups and downs. But um, that is the one thing that I love about uh, Baltimore is this the tenacity to thrive regardless. Um, and nothing um, has ever broken Baltimore to the point of no return. Mm. Um, and while it may take some time to bounce back, uh, Baltimore always bounces back. Um, but that was a that was a hard time, a very hard time to 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 um, sojourn through. But we made it. We made it. Yeah. How does a community and and you personally? How do you make it? Mm-hmm. Um, prayer again, mm-hmm. um, you know, prayer is one of my best friends, so, wow. uh, constant conversation and communication with God, you know, enables me to get through, um, an amazing support system. Um, you know, I have a great, great family that is extremely supportive, um, and, um, amazing friends that are, um, very backing. Um, and colleagues as well, like, um, that do that. Um, knowing when enough is enough and being okay with, with resting or, or as I oftentimes say, adopting the aspect of Jesus that went to the other side. Mm, wow. Um, and, and trusting in, in God's strength and God's ability enough to know that God will hold God's world up while I'm taking a nap. um and um and so that you know that is gravely important um rest i'm I'm finding more and more um is is just as sacred and holy as all the work that we are encumbered by um so that that's how i keep going um spending time with children um i'm blessed in the church that that i serve we have a head start and so uh, whenever I'm in the building, the first thing that I do is walk through the Head Start. And that gives me enough energy and enough joy to make it through whatever I have to face for the rest of the day. Um, children are always a reminder to us that there's a future, that there's a tomorrow, that there's somebody and something worth fighting for. Um, it, it's always interesting. I, I I always embrace in the churches that I serve um uh, crying babies, and um, it's always funny to me because that that can always be an area of contention in a church. You know, there are those that 
still crying babies should not be in worship. And then there's those that love them. And I love them because to me, it's a reminder that that church has a future. Wow. That that church has, you know, someone to live for beyond you. Um, so children remind us of that. Um, so I try to spend time with my nieces and, and my brand new nephew. Um, and um, they give me so much joy and just so much reminder of the innocence of life. And um, so those are ways that I make it. Uh, music is also a, a huge companion. Um, as I said, um, I've been classically trained. Um, so uh, I'm always humming something. Mm. Uh, music gives me a lot of comfort. Um, so try to do that a lot as well. I saw on your Facebook page um, underneath your profile that you have a phrase there. And I'm interested where this phrase come from. Uh, it says, uh, I'm just a beggar who tells other beggars to find where to find bread. Yeah. <laughs> so that's actually a phrase that I have uh, borrowed from my pastor, uh, Reverend Dr. Alfreda Lynette Wiggins, mm. um, who when I arrived at uh, my church, um, my home church, um, actually as a youth pastor, um, almost 12 years ago now, um, that was a phrase that she said to me. And the whole notion behind that is that that's exactly who we are. We are beggars. Um, each one of us, we, we, we need something from God. We need bread from God. And the difference um, between um, oftentimes us preachers and those that are in, in the pews uh, is that we know where the bread is. And so we are able to tell our brothers and sisters, our counterparts, where they can find the bread. That there really is no difference between us other than that. You know, we, we know we know the bread maker. And so we know how, how to access it and how to get other people to where they can access what they need to survive, what they need to thrive, what they need to sustain, uh, what they need to live. Um, uh, beggar also for me is just a reminder of our humility. Um, it takes a humble person to beg. Um, and, you know, it reminds me of, of our constant need to um, disrobe ourselves of our pride, of our egos, um, and recognize that, um, but by the grace of God, um, you know, we are um, wretches undone. Mm. Um, so it, it keeps me humble. I was thinking of that phrase, and and I had never heard that before. I, I love that sentence, though. It, it it sums up ministry so well, keeping mm. keeping all of us attentive to God throughout um, each day. I'm thinking. Absolutely. I'm thinking. In my and that's mind, why that bread is capitalized. Yes. <laughs> so even even bread being capitalized is intentional. It's not. Our, it's not our own bread. It's right. Uh, yep. I'm wondering, what does the white community need to understand about race in America that it doesn't understand right now? And this is a huge question, <laughs> but that is a very broad question. It is. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I was trying to think of ways to, uh, to narrow. No, no, you know, no, not, not at all. Not at all. It's, it's, a, it's a, a heavy question too. Um, yeah. Another way to maybe get it. I guess the, very, very plainly spoken. My message would be that because you do not experience it, or the harm that it inflicts does not mean that it is not real. Mm. 
and um, the experiences around the systemic um, issues related to racism um, and inequality are very, very real experiences and lived experiences for, for those of us that have lived through them. And, and it is amazing. Um, you, you see it at, at every faction of life. You know, I, I vividly remember coming through um, in preparation for ordination and uh, my writing being questioned because the thought at the table was that people of color don't write that well. Wow. And here at that point, you know, I had obtained um, a degree in English and was teaching English. <laughs> <laughs> teaching English um, on the college level. <laughs> mm. And it was questioned about, you know, what what I was writing. So, you know, it is, it is very real. It, it is a very real lived experience um and, and it has done much harm you use the the phrase systemic racism and so much of what i hear about racism has to do with one person having animosity or hatred or dislike of someone of a different race but systemic racism and racism itself it is so much bigger and broader is is what, what does that mean, systemic racism? It is where those very feelings that, that you describe um, and that definition of, of, of racism, where it shows up in, in the system under which we live, systems that are supposed to afford each of us basic human rights out of the mere fact that we are living human beings, but um, withholds them for those very reasons. Um, and so when we look at it in terms of funding for school systems and, and even still in 2020, the fact that when, as I call it, when, when Mother Nature punished the entire world and told us all we could not get off of the steps, um, there were communities of children that were ready the day before it happened for mm. schools to be shut down that had access to the technology, that had access to to the laptops, that had access to the materials. And then there are whole factions of children that have not encountered an educational lesson since the day they left school. And so when, when we don't have measures and things in place that afford for everyone to advance, uh, we see that come come up there. Um, we see it in, um, in, in you know, even in ordination in the life of the church, um, I'm one of the congregations I'm serving now is 214, 15 years old, I believe. They would kill me if they if they heard me not able to quote their, their age. But um, the church is very, very old, um, and um, it is actually the um, church in our annual conference that integrated what we call cross-racial appointments. However, which only times for us um, is uh, persons of other ethnicities um, being sent to pastor um, majority or all white churches. Very, very, very rarely will you see a white pastor assigned to an African-American church or a white pastor assigned to an Asian church or a Hispanic church. But any other racial group will be sent 
um, to to pastor white congregations. And so this particular church that I'm serving now was the first church to ever do that in 1966. Mm. And uh, they received their first African-American pastor in 1966. And to this day, the membership still boasts that the KKK met him at the door on his first Sunday in full robes. And so when we look at those kind of systems and, and what that does to a clergy person under that weight and that strain, which is extra weight and strain on top of the weight and strain that automatically comes with the job. Wow. And now having to fear for your life and the safety of your family, um, you know, and, and things of that nature. So, it, you know, it, it prevails and it shows itself time and time again, you know, all, all over the place. And going back to thinking of these last two weeks, what message are you hearing from these protests? I, I think the, the, the overarching message that, that I am hearing, that I am that I'm sensing, that I'm feeling. And, and some of this, I think, was brewing even before Brother Floyd was killed, is that we are no longer asking for things to change or things to be righted that were wrong. We are now demanding it. That is one of the beauties I've, I've said of even the pandemic, is that it is affording us an opportunity to strip ourselves of practices and habits and customs, even in light of church, that have held us bound, that have kept us arrested, that have not borne fruit since they were planted. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, and so now here we are at this place. And so when we look at the fact that, you know, young people are really fueling this fight, um, are engaged and energized and are not stopping. When we look at the fact that we are now you know, um, this was not a, a one and two day protest and it's over and we try to get back. Um, protests are going on as you and I are conversing. And they're not just, just isolated to where the tragedy has taken place. We are now seeing protests around God's globe. Mm. And so, you know, the, the earth is crying out for change mm. and for wrongs to be righted. And, and I think that that message again is, you know, we are no longer asking, um, you know, this is, this is not up for discussion or debate any longer. Uh, that's, that's one of my famous lines. One of my members would love to say, I love to say to her that this is not open for discussion, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, this is not open for discussion. Yeah. You know, um, things must change. So what, what role does the church have to help bring about, the change that you're talking about? The first thought that popped in my mind, Jerry, is, um, and I'm, I'm horrible with quoting references, but I, I know the text, is the scripture that says, you are the salt of the earth. Mm. And that, I believe, is our role, is to ensure that the salt balance is maintained in the midst of all the change and the evolution and um, the mending that happens. Salt can make or break a meal. And I think the church is gifted um, to appropriately season what is being done. I've, I've said for several years now, since, um, since, our, since our friend has taken up residence on Pennsylvania Avenue, that one of the 
blessings in disguise of his election is that the church will be forced to really now put action to his word. That we can no longer be a people of just flowery, flowery language. Um, a people that are, is able to write a beautiful resolution and apology and lament, but that now we we really got to put our money where our mouths are. Um, and and so that that is our role. Um, as I look at how God has during this time stripped the church down to her bare necessities, and yet we have survived. And in some cases, we are surviving in, in areas and in places we have not been able to survive or thrive in in a long time. Um, you know, I, I made a joke with my my church recently um, in the African-American tradition, um, really regardless of denomination, um, special days are important. So Men's Day and Women's Day are like major in a black church. Um, they are, are huge days. And, and I jokingly said to my church uh, a couple of weeks ago, we we survived not having Women's Day, <laughs> you know, and, mm. and and nobody died, the world did not stop, a building did not crumble, <laughs> you know. So as as we are stripping ourselves of some of this stuff, but yet we're growing stronger and stronger. Um, and so that that I believe is our role. I, I also believe it is still our role to. Speak truth to power, um, and that power extends from the White House to our own house. Mm. That um, you know we are under obligation to do that, um, and to ensure that in what we do, um, God is edified and exalted. Um, it, it it blesses me, brother, as um, here in our area now things are starting to slowly open back up. Churches are having worship outside. And and so for me, we are living more into Acts two than we ever had. Wow. Mm. And and folk really are hearing in their own language that the miracles of God. Um, you know, and and it is you know we're we're forced to do it, but um, you know, a lot of us preachers are hard headed, and God has forced us to do things. <laughs> so right. you know, God, God has forced us you know out of our comfort zones, out of our norms, out of our regular routines. But thanks be to God, look at the fruit that is that is there. You know. So what what has the atmosphere in the DC area been like in these past couple of weeks? It's been it's been very interesting. Um, so I, I, I attended a a visual slash protest about a week ago in DC, and honestly, that's the first protest that I've ever attended in DC. So, you know, I'm used to protesting at home in Baltimore where I know the neighborhoods, where if something goes down, I know how to get out of Dodge if I need to, you know, whatnot. Um, so it, it was a, a very different feel, um, but um, very passionate. And, and I think the passion is what charged the crowd. Um, you know, that demand for change um, and that, that one accord. You know, again, it takes me back to Acts 2. When we were gathered together on one accord, then then the power fell. And, and so you see this, this coming together in a way that you never had before. You know, to a degree, you're seeing the, the wolf lie with the lamb. And, wow. you know, when, you, when you've when you got, you know, bishops 
that are kneeling beside folks that are cussing like sailors um, and angry and frustrated and are screaming and hollering in the faces of the cops. And and these, these bishops yoked <laughs> wow. are, are kneeling and prayer with these persons. You know, it, it is a, a beautiful thing. One last question, Michael. What are some signs of hope that you are seeing today? I think every sunrise is a sign of hope. Mm. Granted, what we wake up to may not be the best, what we have to confront or face may not be the easiest or the most ideal. The fact that we wake up is a sign of hope. And even a sign that I made it through yesterday. And, and that's the thing I think we often forget Yet our yesterdays expired. We didn't. Um, so that's a sign of hope. Um, another sign of hope is just certainly the the overwhelming response of the faith community um, and the um, the ecumenical partnerships that are coming together um, in responses to both pandemics that we see right now. So that's a sign of hope. Um, the strength of local leadership, I think, at least in this area, is a sign of hope. Um, I have become a huge fan of, of Mayor Muriel Bowser in D.C. Um, just her, her leadership is extraordinary. Um, that's a shop sister. And um, she's a feet-on-the-ground leader. And so to me, that is a, that's a sign of hope. You know, you, here you have a leader that is not afraid to... Um, to come to the pain, to come to the hurt. Um, and any leader that is willing to do that, I believe is a leader that's really, that you should be willing to follow. So that, that's a sign of hope that, that there is still trusted leadership. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing and the role that, um, that you're playing in helping to heal. Yeah. I appreciate well, man, I, I appreciate you being willing and bold enough to, and courageous enough to have this kind of a conversation. Well, I hope it's and, not our last, so Michael. That, I hope, that's the sign of hope. I hope we can have another one down the road at some point as well. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Man, it's been my honor. Thank you for having me. That has been a conversation with the Reverend Michael Parker II, pastor of a two-point charge in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm grateful to him for his honesty and for his candor for the continued work that he's doing in the D.C. area to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. And I look forward to more conversations with him and others on this podcast, The Table. Have a great day.